Hey there, Internet. I'm Annie. I'm Kit. And this is I Will Fight You, a podcast where we've been turning opinion into stone-cold facts since 1986. Today's fact, halflings are better with dinosaurs. This is not Alpha and Omega. That's a different episode. That's about wolves. This one's about halflings and dinosaurs and robots and lots of other extremely cool things. Because this episode, we are talking about Eberron, the D&D setting that you should absolutely be playing. And to do that, we brought on Eberron number one stand, Christopher Sims. Hi, Chris. Hi, I'm very happy to take over this podcast with D&D for another six months. <laughs> Very excited. So welcome to our next six-month series on Everon. Chris, I swear to God. <laughs> Hi, kid. Sorry. <laughs> you said three hours, Chris. It's okay. Listen, let's talk about whose fault that is. <laughs> Pretty sure it's yours. It's definitely not. I think it's probably partially mine because I'm one of the player characters and we're bad at dungeons. I run another game with Annie in it, and we are playing the Descent into Avernus campaign. Very, very fun, which is about descending into hell itself to save a city full of innocent people who will be turned into devils and sacrificed on the front lines of the Blood War. Except now it's mostly about shopping. <laughs> look, look, we did that whole Curse of Strahd campaign, and there was nowhere to shop. There were no shops. Except for Blinsky. Yeah, the toy maker. And we bought toys from Blinsky the toy maker and then gave him my awful, horrible puppet son. Yeah. Piddlewick 2. I'm just going to interrupt this riveting conversation real quick <laughs> to explain that Mac is not here because she had a thing. Because I'm here. And that's why we're not doing Alpha and Omega yet. Yeah, there is that. Because I'm here. I know. I understand. Have you ever seen Chris and Mac in the same place at the same time? Hmm. No. Well, I haven't. I mean, I haven't seen Chris ever, so... I am, as you mentioned, the number one Eberron fan. I have been into it since literally the day it came out, because I was working in a comic book store at the time. So I picked up the book on release day in 2004, and immediately just absolutely loved the setting. It is my all-time favorite campaign setting for D&D. I feel like it should be the default setting for D&D, although I understand why it's not, which I'll get to in a second. I think it is tragic that the Forgotten Realms are currently the default setting for D&D because the Forgotten Realms are trash. <laughs> I was trying to be nice. I was trying to be nice, but they are. Yeah, you could definitely hear the gears turning there in, in that pregnant pause. Yeah. You could hear him trying to come up with something nice to say, and then the process just blue screened anyone with trash. <laughs> I think it's important to establish this up front. Because it, a lot of what I like about Eberron, and I think a lot of what works about Eberron, is that it exists in contrast to a lot of stuff. And one of the things that exists in contrast to is a setting like the Forgotten Realms, which is wildly popular for some reason. And therefore there is like a ton of published content, novels, setting stuff that have really like defined how the Forgotten Realms work, which... If you don't know, that is the continent of Toril. It's the planet of Toril. Oh, it's the continent of Faerun. It's the continent of Faerun. The planet also has another name because it's, there's a second Faerun. It was Abair Toril for go. a while, and then they split back apart into Abair and Toril. It was the spell plague and then the sundering because it was 2004, and they felt like they needed to do the reboot, which all the cool kids were doing. Uh, oh my god. I will say... I think the Spell Plague is a really cool idea, and I think the thing where, like, the gods die and are reborn, that is also a really cool idea. I don't think it's a cool idea for a role-playing game, is the problem. Because my big problem with the Forgotten Realms is, because of all that published stuff, and because of it being so much of the focus, it's always going to feel, to me, like it's somebody else's campaign. Playing in that world, I feel like, is very restrictive. And again, any setting can be exactly what you want it to be. You are allowed and encouraged to change everything. But I like having a structure to build things on. Because if I have to come up with it all, that's work. <laughs> that's my actual job. You just come up with half of hell. Yes. And a whole bunch of stores. Well, that's the thing. I love to rewrite campaigns, and I love to, like, rewrite settings. The Avernus campaign that we're playing now is, like, maybe... By the time we got to the end of Curse of Strahd, we were, like, way off the book. And I think at this point in Avernus were maybe like 50-50 with stuff that I've added or made up versus what's in the book. And I actually really like the book. So that's a pretty average amount for me if I'm running an adventure that I like. But I do like the scaffold. As long as I have something there that I can build on, it's not work. <laughs> like if there's a foundation, if I have to build the house, that's not work. If I have to build everything, that's work. So you're fine with renovations, but not wholesale construction. Yes, exactly. I need a Stardew Valley, not a Sims. 
I guess by that analogy, my approach to Gem Jammer is I found a, a rotting pile of wood and I just decided to burrow in there and kind of <laughs> live there for a bit and dig tunnels under it. At this point, if they came out with a 5e Spelljammer book, it would be more of an inconvenience to me than anything else. You went out to the woods and there was a lean-to there and like so many lean-tos in the woods, it turned out to have dirty books underneath. <laughs> Also, I feel like the Forgotten Realms, not to dwell on this any longer than I need to, the Forgotten Realms are wildly complicated. <laughs> Didn't we look up the histories together once and there were like 20,000 years and like several separate timelines? Like if you read the book, if you get the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide and like pop it open to the timeline, that shit starts 14,000 years ago with specific events. And that can pound sand as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> the thing that I find the most frustrating and the thing that I find very endemic of the problem with the Forgotten Realms is there is a sidebar about money that makes me bleed from the eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were furious about that one. Well, that's because it's infuriating. <laughs> Explain to me the sidebar about money, because I did not read the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. Well, I read it, but I flipped to the parts that were useful. Okay. Do they explain what money is? Mm. <laughs> In, like, a philosophical sense? Like, do they explain that money can be exchanged for goods and services? <laughs> no. <laughs> I can buy many peanuts. <laughs> d d if you're unfamiliar, the monetary system of d d is very simple. There's copper pieces, and ten copper pieces is a silver piece. Ten silver pieces are a gold piece. Ten gold pieces are a platinum piece. Fifth edition added back in Electrum, which is halfway between silver and gold. It's mostly by tens, except Electrum is five gold. I don't know why they wanted to add that back in, but Electrum is a cool word, so whatever. The Coin of the Realm sidebar, page 13 of the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. Again, page 13, chapter one. I'm assuming you have this open in front of you now. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> it has a list of all the bullshit fantasy names that all of the different cities in Faerun give their money. And one of them has both the real term and in parentheses and quotation marks the slang term for them. And sometimes there are unique coins for a city. And so if you're traveling around, you might need to trade 10 fanders for a sambar. It's the worst. So it's the same currency mostly, but people just have different words for it. Except Silvery Moon also mints two special coins, the Moon and the Eclipsed Moon. The Moon is a crescent-shaped shining blue coin of Electrum valued at two unicorns in Silvery Moon and nearby settlements, and one unicorn everywhere else. The Eclipsed Moon stamps out an Electrum Moon with a darker silver wedge to complete a round coin. It's worth five unicorns in the city, but only two unicorns elsewhere. Waterdeep has its own coins. The tail is a square piece of brass worth two dragons in the city and virtually worthless to anyone not trading in Waterdeep. Most travelers exchange their tails for standard coins before traveling. The Harbor Moon is a palm-sized crescent of platinum inset with Electrum, and it's worth 50 dragons in the city, 30 dragons elsewhere. Its name comes from the common use in buying large amounts of cargo. The Eclipse Moon lives in a blue house and has a red car, but doesn't live next to Paul. Yeah, it's the worst. I actually got so mad about it I did math one time. You got so mad you did math. Only intense rage could motivate me to, to do long division. <laughs> I'm going to gently redirect us back onto loving Eberron instead of hating Forgotten Realms now. Okay. <laughs> right, because I got to tell you guys, I've got this book open in front of me, and I'm looking at a two-page spread with a couple of different enemy types. One of them is a robot covered in knives, and the other one is a giant kitty cat tiger furry who is on fire. Uh, yeah. And I'm interested in this. Yeah, that'll happen. I feel like it's important to establish that stuff about the Forgotten Realms, because I do think that's kind of the default for D&D. Like, that's what people think D&D is. Eberron is the exact opposite, in that everything's very simple and straightforward, and also very exciting and different. It is simple, but different, i.e. halflings ride dinosaurs. <laughs> Do we want to do the thing where we all describe our experience with the particular piece of media and how we got into it? Because Chris explained that he was there on day one, you know, establishing his nerd cred. Mine is probably the shortest, so you go ahead first, kid. <laughs> okay, I first became dimly aware of Eberron when Dungeons & Dragons Online first came out. As I remember, that was set in Eberron, mm -hmm. and everyone thought that was kind of a weird choice for Dungeons & Dragons Online, but it sounded interesting to me, although I never got into playing it. I always remain dimly aware of it, but my taste in D&D &D settings is much further towards the Planescape, Spelljammer, Ravenloft side of things, where I can get, like... Stupid and goth. Yeah, stupid and goth, and I can memorize impossibly huge scale... Uh, <laughs> 
shapes of things and the laws of physics don't work the way they're supposed to and entire political factions exist to express an existential point of view and also bash your head in with a truncheon if they need to so <laughs> that's a lot <laughs> Yeah, we got to talk about Planescape at some point. But anyway, yeah. Oh, God. That's my experience with Eberron. I've maintained a passing familiarity with it, but I have not dove into it too much. I love everything that I've been exposed to about Eberron. And I joined a Eberron game in progress that Chris and some of our friends were picking back up. Our friend Ben was running it and he actually put it, it was actually a Pathfinder game set in Eberron using like a six level cap system. So it was already weird and kind of like homebrewed anyway. But here's the thing. Eberron keeps talking about the word noir in the source book a lot. Ours was the Rockford Files. Yes. Very much so. <laughs> I played an extremely shitty teen who is an artificer from a Dragonmark house who was just kind of, you know, hanging out with a bunch of trashy detectives. Chris was obsessed with brunch. Yeah. Oh, so that's where you get it from. Then we had two Warforged who were Axe and Dud. Dud was a bard. One of my favorite character concepts ever. The reason he was named Dud was because he was a pacifist. <laughs> he was a pacifist <laughs> robot soldier made for war. He was a pacifist robot soldier made for war who was also an abolitionist, I think? Yes. He was an anarchist. Yes. Very good. And also, you were a secret cop and also a monarchist, I think. Yes, I was a devout monarchist undercover cop, and Chris kept that secret from the rest of the party for a year. And I was very proud of that. I love it when there are secrets. My exposure to Eberron, I am very aware maybe through the lens of a very specific party, because this is the same group that we have also done our Curse of Strahd game in and our Descendant to Avernus game and a couple of other things. So, like, I'm pretty sure that Eberron doesn't, in its source, have a theme park devoted to a book series of crappy fantasy novels that your party made up that were secretly run by, like, a mind flayer or something that we then exploded and walked out as the whole park blew up behind us right after saving Christmas. And before that, we reunited a Dracula pirate queen with her ghost lover who is stuck in a mirror. But all of that can happen, and that's why Eberron's great. Yes. Yeah. Also, that was all precipitated because five different crime syndicates wanted us to work for them, and we decided to ollie out, do a leave, and just sort of skip town for a while. That was my favorite part of the entire campaign, was that Ben set up over the course of multiple sessions that we were going to basically do a Yojimbo, a for a few dollars more, if you will, where we had double-crossed several criminal groups, and we were all supposed to meet them at the same time for the big rumble. And I was like, can we leave town? Because I don't want to leave town if he's got something planned. Like, I do not want to reject the premise of the game. Because as a dungeon master, I am well aware of how annoying that is. But I did feel like it was very much in character for our party to just leave. Yeah, we were terrible detectives. Yeah. Awful. The worst. Because it was the Rockford Files. Right. Yeah. We got beat up a lot. Yeah. I got beat up a lot. I don't know if you did. It's not a proper Rockford Files episode until Rockford gets gut punched into a chair. Yeah. I did have a special episode with Axe where we figured out there was something with like a changeling and like solved a crime and then got a whole bunch of reward money for it and then blew it all on the giant ant races and new hats. It's very good. That's the kind of crimes we solved. So just so this doesn't turn into an episode about Annie and Chris's D&D campaign, <laughs> right. we should maybe get back to explaining what Eberron is. Solid bonus content. That just gives you an idea of the sort of flavor of Eberron that can exist. In 2002, Wizards of the Coast, the publishers of Dungeons and Dragons, has a contest to determine what's going to be their next big campaign setting that they're going to focus on. Uh, at the time, it was D&D 3.5. We were just kind of going into 3.5, which is the revised version of 3rd Edition. 3rd Edition had been kind of default-based in Greyhawk, which was the Gary Gygax, Dave Arneson classic D&D campaign setting. Very generic, but, you know, adaptable. You can do whatever you want. I know a lot of people who actually sent in, like, pitches for campaign settings into this contest, but I can also see why they went with this one. Everyone was designed by Keith Baker. He had already done some work for D&D and for Watsi, but he has also designed other games. He designed the card game Gloom. If you've played that one, that's a fun one. Oh, dip. Yeah. His approach to D&D in Eberron has the perfect elevator pitch high concept, but it's also got so much granular detail that kind of only results from the very weird rules characteristics of 3.5 D&D. <laughs> <laughs> the elevator pitch is it's 1940s pulp adventure, but everything that exists in D&D exists. So like gnomes, the spell fireball, dinosaurs... <laughs> 
<laughs> and the drow, unfortunately. We'll get to it. Oof. <laughs> Look, he tried. I'll give him that one. <laughs> he, he did try. So that's the basic idea. You've got this setting. It's on a continent called Corvair, with a K and an H. Because why not? Because of course. Yeah, because of course. Corvair was until relatively recently dominated by one big human empire. A hundred years ago, there was an unclear matter of secession between the five heirs who all launched into a civil war. And that civil war wound up lasting for 100 years. It ended in Eberron Canon four years ago, I think. (laughs) Yeah, it's either two years or four years since the signing of the Treaty of Thronehold. So... We've just come out of a massive world war. People are trying to figure out what that means. Was One Kingdom is now not just the five original seceding feuding kingdoms, because one of those got blown up on the Day of Mourning, which was the kind of event that precipitated the end of the war. So there's the four remaining kingdoms that used to be part of this big empire, but also other kingdoms just took advantage of it and seceded. And so you've got a country that's run by gnomes. You've got a country that's essentially monsters that have all kind of banded together and formed their own independent nation because all of the, you know, this big human empire is uh, mean to monsters <laughs> because it's D&D. There's a group of independent pirate islands. There's all kinds of stuff. What that means is there is a canon reason for every piece of that world to have a very different flavor. But it's all a flavor that exists in D&D. You've got the kind of encouraged starting point. The, the one that they assume that you're going to start in is Breland, which is America. <laughs> it is it is post-war America. It's a highly industrialized country where you are assumed to play in Sharn, which is fake fantasy New York. It's the city of towers. It's a lot like, if you've played KOTOR, it's a lot like Terrace in that it's an entirely vertical city. So like everybody fancy lives up top. Everybody who doesn't have money lives in poverty on the bottom. Yes. And there's also, like, you know, a big university there that can hire you to go do stuff. It's the center of one of the dragon-marked families, which I guess I should probably cover before I get into the countries. Yeah, there's a whole chapter just on Sharn in the source book, which we should probably plug here. It came out just, like, last year or so? It's very recent, yeah. Yeah, it's called Eberron Rising from the Last War, so that's where the Artificer class, which was originally from Eberron, was an unearthed arcana and sort of playtesting for a long time, and now it actually has an official release. In here, there's, like, rules for playing some different races. Like, I think orcs have rule sets now. It's a very good book. It's also got, like, news clippings throughout the whole thing, which is great. I guess if you're going to do a 40s noir setting, you've got to be coming off the end of a world war. That's the only way a noir setting functions because everybody's got some damage and it's a very D idea of what a world war is too because the kind of major addition to DD, everyone introduces like four new ancestries for DD. there's the shifters who are in the way that like tieflings are you know half demons shifters are half lycanthropes and they all look like wolverine <laughs> and in fact like one of the types you can be is one that has claws bub Snicked. There's the changelings, which are half doppelgangers. There's the Kalashtar, which are weird psionic stuff that I don't mess with. <laughs> oh no, psionics. Yeah. <laughs> the bane of every edition of D&D. <laughs> but the reason they're there is because, again, the watchword of the book is everything that exists in D&D exists here. So if psionics exist, here we go. But the fourth one is the one that kind of stuck around and is the major contribution to D&D. Because in a way that, like, shifters and changelings haven't really stuck around outside of Eberron, Warforged are, like, part of D&D. They're not in the core book, but, like, they have been adapted into other gaming systems. Like, the Cobalt Press Midgard setting has, I think they're called Gearforged there. But, you know, there are Pathfinder rules for Warforged. And they are basically robots that were made to fight a war. They are expendable robot soldiers. That's, like, the fascinating thing is that, like, the Warforged by themselves, they are so indelibly tied into this whole setting of a war just ended, what do you do now? Like, that's the whole gist of Warforged in Eberron, so it's fascinating to see them adapted outside into other settings. It's literally a new type of character that in canon was created 20 years ago. The oldest ones, if they still exist, are 20, and they are expendable soldiers made to fight on the front lines of this massive continent-spanning war. But because they're magic, they're all sentient, and they all, like, have feelings and can feel pain. (laughs) 
And the way that, like, you can do that in D&D is just go, oh, it's magic. They found a forgotten eldritch spell and made these things called creation forges, and now they made new people. And that's really interesting, because you basically get the Star Trek The Next Generation episode Measure of a Man happening <laughs> in Eberron continuity as part of the big treaty that ends the war. On a broad scale. They're granted, like, the rights of sentient creatures. And that's a really good idea. That alone is a really, really solid idea. To not just invent this new type of creature, but also to have a canon reason why there is a lot of debate and stress around being that kind of creature. And I think that's really cool. Like, that's something that I think other campaign settings struggle with. Because you want to have something unique about every kind of creature that someone can play, every type of ancestry. But a lot of times that defaults to all drow are evil except mine. <sighs> and mine has lavender eyes and two swords. <laughs> and twin swords. Yep, there it is. Hey, remember that time that Drizzt was getting reincarnated and he was doing, like, exercises in the womb so he would come out the buffest baby ever? What? Uh, I don't remember that, but that is kind of awesome, actually. What the fuck? <laughs> God fucking damn <laughs> That's canon! That happened! God! So he was, like, inside his mom but like it was like that 10 times gravity chamber that goku was in that one time you know like goku <laughs> you know like goku you know goku like him but a fetus yeah but a fetus it's like those posters on the florida turnpike that are like a baby's heart starts beating 18 days it's just like it starts working out at 18 days <laughs> <laughs> there's those new types of characters but the humans get the dragon marks well i guess all kinds of creatures get the dragon marks that's so dragon marks <laughs> they're cool glowing magic tattoos that 12 big families have so there's the political situation of like the different countries but there's also this structural power hierarchy that exists outside of that because each of these families has a shiny magical tattoo that gives them access to a specific set of spells that lets them completely dominate an aspect of life house caneth is kind of the most well-known one because they created the Warforged, but they have the mark of making, which makes them really good at crafting in a very D&D 3.5 sort of way. How Civis has the mark of sending, which they're basically like gnomes who run telegram services. But Eberron gnomes are also have a complex secret police. So they, <laughs> so, you know, things get wild. There's also a secret 13th house. Shh. Shh. You don't know about the 13th house and the secret 13th moon that was destroyed. It's a lot. It's a lot going on. But it's a lot that I love. That's kind of the basics, right? That's at least some of the setting. Giant magic city, noble families who all have secret magic tattoos. They're very cool. That give them special powers. So there's like built in a reason for multiple levels of conflict. There can be conflict between the countries. There can be conflict between the dragon marked houses. There can be conflict between the country and the dragon marked houses. Because apparently the dragon marked houses all stayed neutral during the war, which I imagine can probably create, you know, a little, little, little bit of bad feelings. Yeah. From the beginning of the kingdom, they exist outside of political power, which is another very interesting aspect of the last war and how it all works. The countries, Berland, fake America, with Sharn, fake New York. Lots of towers, literal magic neon signs. If you look at the pictures in the book, which I think are hilarious, <laughs> there's like a, mag like a magical neon sign of a dragon outside a bar. Imagine steampunk, but you replace technology with magic. It's very steampunk, but in a specifically D&D sort of way. There's airships, but the airships are powered by bound elementals, and they can only be flown by one of the Dragonmark houses. House Lyrander. By the way, I did no reading mm -hmm. before I came on the show, because I have read cover to cover every book about Eberron as it came out. I've read the entire book about Sharn. I've read the entire book about the history of the Five Nations. It is a setting where I really, really love the fluff. The crunch is, to me, negligible in terms of importance. The fluff, the setting, the story stuff, love it. There's Ondare, which is a fairy tale kingdom. Lots of magic, a big magic school called Arcanics, pastoral and beautiful and big towers and like princesses and coronets and knights and stuff. That's Ondare. There's uh, Karnath, which also has one of the best ideas I have ever encountered in D&D. Okay. And I stole this and I encourage you to steal it as well. It's the country where everybody's just super cool with the undead. Oh, <laughs> okay. No, you've told me about some of the stuff you've stolen using this idea. You go to Karnath and like, it's all gothy and everything, but also there's like skeletons delivering the mail. Cause you know, one thing you're never gonna run out of is dead bodies, especially if you're fighting a war. 
So they just got a bunch of necromancers to be like, okay, here's 50 skeletons to collect trash on Thursdays. (laughs) (laughs) They used, like, undead soldiers in the war, which other countries were not super chill with. And part of the reason they did this is at the behest of their king, King Caius III, who is secretly King Caius I, who is a vampire. (laughs) He's just been pretending? Yeah. Yeah, he went away for a while and then he came back and he bears a suspicious resemblance. He's great. So at some point, the king just kind of retires for about, what, 40 years? And then the next one comes along like, surprise! Yeah, you know, vampire stuff. Yeah, I mean, you'll get that. Look, it's either that, or it's cause a bunch of mists to come and surround your castle while you whine about being an incel for the next four editions. As you do. (laughs) Then you build a bone zone in your house. I'm trying to remember what the other two countries are. I mean, I have a book with an index. I can just open this. There's a big two-sided poster map in here. Of course there is. What, you guys haven't memorized all 18 outer planes? No! <laughs> Only when they're coterminous. Because <laughs> the fifth one is Sire. What's the fourth one? Ondair, Braylon, Sire, Dargoon, Demon Waste, Drome, Elden Reaches, Karnath, Lazar Principalities, Moror Holds, Kabara, Shadow Marches, Talenta Plains, Thrain, Thronehold, Valinar, Zillargo. Thrain. That's okay. the one. Thrain is the theocracy run by the fake fantasy Catholic Church that did a crusade against lycanthropes. Just lycanthropes? Just lycanthropes. Like, they didn't really go against the country that is using liches for their generals or whatever. Thrain is ruled over by this organization called the Church of the Silver Flame. The deal with the Church of the Silver Flame is that the Pope is spoken to by the voice of the flame. Because there is a literal gigantic silver flame where a paladin struck down a demon. Like a, a devil, I guess. A demon, a devil, or a daemon. Or a yugoloth. A fiend of some type in a distantly past age. So the flame speaks to the Pope. Who is not called the Pope, but you know. And the thing is, in the book, it is left deliberately unclear and you are encouraged to decide for yourself if it's the paladin or the devil talking. (laughs) Or both. Also, the Pope is a six-year-old girl. Beg pardon? Yeah, she's a six-year-old girl who is a 20th level cleric only in Vatican City. What is she outside the city? She's a six-year-old girl. (laughs) (laughs) A level zero six-year-old girl. Yeah. Which is one of the better parts. Again, not to pick on the Forgotten Realms, because I exaggerate my intense and all-consuming hatred for it. But a question that I always have in the Forgotten Realms is, why can't Elminster handle this? Why can't Drizzt handle this? Why can't all of these high-level NPCs who have novel series? Like, why am I doing this? (laughs) I just want breakfast. (laughs) Honestly, that's the touchstone of all your characters. I just want breakfast. Yeah. In Eberron, it is a specifically crafted, low-level setting. If you are 10th level in Eberron, you are one of the most powerful people alive. Which you should be, because you can cast Fireball. (laughs) And Fireball (laughs) is a big deal. There are very high level NPCs, but they're all confined to specific places. The leader of the Church of the Silver Flame can't really leave Thrain. Can't really leave her home. The most powerful druid in the world who kind of runs the druidic religion, is a tree. It's a big pine tree. Big tree. A druid cast Awakening on it, and it's now a 20th level druid. Why? Because... Because they're druids. Because f*** around and find out. Yeah. (laughs) What if I turn this tree sentient and this tree starts to gain experience points? So this druid's just like, so I read the giving tree. Maybe I can get some sweet loot out of this. Yeah. And then, oops, it turns into your boss. Yeah, it's a tree, though. It can't move. It stays where it stays. But it's, you know, really powerful. Very strong tree. There's the Lord of Blades, who we'll come back to in a second. Because I gotta talk about the Fifth Nation. Okay. That's Sire. All right. Sire doesn't exist anymore. There's a thing called the Day of Mourning that destroyed the entire country. No one knows what it was, why it happened, or why it seems literally confined to the exact borders of the country. They just woke up and this whole area was exploded. Yes. And also covered in impenetrable mists that you can, like, go in there. Wait, no, I've heard about those. Bad deal. Dracula's in there. There's a real Dracula problem in there. There's a Dracula who will not get over how much he liked this one girl. Yeah, there's a Dracula, some racist stereotypes, a toy maker. It's a real bad scene. Cool murder puppet, though. The deal is, though, there's these, you know, toxic mists in the entire country. So there's like refugees from Sire, which was always considered to be like the nicest one of the nations. It was the jewel of the five nations. And of course, it's the one that got destroyed. Natch. The thing is, Warforged don't breathe. Warforged can go there and be fine. 
Anybody else, any creature that has to breathe can only stay in there for a certain amount of time before the toxicity gets to them. Warforged can just live there. And so there is Dr. Doom. Uh-huh. <laughs> to be very charitable to my dude, Keith Baker, inspired by Dr. Doom. Well, look, if you could put a Dr. Doom in Dungeons and Dragons, yeah, why, why wouldn't, wouldn't you? you? <laughs> exactly. There's a guy called the Lord of Blades, who is a Warforged covered in knives, <laughs> who is Dr. Doom. It's a pretty good picture. He is gathering an army of Warforged there for a reason that is, again, left deliberately unclear and left up to the DM to decide. You can even decide whether that dude is a Warforged or not. He could just be a dude in a suit, a Doctor Doom, if you will. And that, I think, is the most appealing thing. A lot of the specifics of Eberron are deliberately left to the players. There's no canon explanations for most of the things, because all they're giving you is a very detailed and very adaptable scaffolding which again is what I love to see in a D&D setting. And the only other one that really comes close to that is 13th Age, mm. which is nothing but like, I don't know, maybe it's like this. <laughs> Here's 13 things that are true about this world. The rest of it, I don't know, you do it. <laughs> you bought the book. <laughs> It's your game. A lot of second edition Spelljammer is a lot like that. Not on purpose, but because the entire setting was written on bar napkins over the course of a weekend. Mm. So there, there's a lot of the second edition Spelljammer books that are just kind of like, here's some ideas for the rest of it. I don't know. You do it. <laughs> no. If you need monsters... Just reskin some other monsters and say they look weird. Yeah. I mean, that is sort of, as I understand it, that's the idea of the Spelljammer setting, right? Like, use the rules from the other thing. I don't care. <laughs> It's very good. It's very, very good. Okay, now I do need I do need to be told about the halflings on dinosaurs. Right. So one of the things that everyone does that I really, really like is it takes everything that exists in D&D, but changes it just enough so that it's no longer quite as familiar, quite as cliche. Yeah, like the character creation section in chapter one, there are paragraphs for all of the pre-existing like player ancestries and stuff that you can have. But, you know, they're all like, so this is how it works here with the understanding that you have the rule sets established elsewhere. They're just all paragraphs of flavor text for giving you some context for how this type works in this setting, which is very cool. If you are a halfling, you can be like, a halfling who's part of the house that has the mark of hospitality, where, you know, you are a traditional D&D friendly, come to my inn and hang out and celebrate your 11th birthday, Uncle Bilbo. <laughs> you know, Kenders, it's fine. Yeah, you know, legally actionable hobbit people. <laughs> you know, they resemble but are legally distinct from Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> exactly. You could also be a halfling who lives on the Talenta Plains, in which case you are a barbarian who rides a dinosaur. To the point where dinosaurs are a very big part of your culture. You're like a troll from WoW. They are nomads who ride dinosaurs, and the reason they ride dinosaurs is because you can ride a dinosaur if you're a halfling, because dinosaurs don't have to be that big. <laughs> <laughs> like, you can ride an Allosaurus. It doesn't need to be that big. It's a great idea. Like, you know how raptors are actually small and not the size of, like, the Utah raptors from Jurassic Park? Halflings are also small. Gnomes are the same way. They are curious inventors who have innate magical powers, but they also have a highly uh, regimented society with a secret police because they are innately magical, extremely gifted at building things types of creatures. This is the flaw of Eberron slash D&D as a whole, is that it's hard to talk about a lot of this without getting into what are traditionally real-life negative stereotypes. Oh yeah, the gnomes, they're crafty. Ooh. But I do think it's interesting to do that with, say gnomes in a way where you have the option to play something like that or to say like oh yeah this is how the people who are in charge of the society are running it as opposed to all of these creatures are like this which is where you get into some really dicey territory i think i do like that the section on half elves is pretty much exclusively just boils down to don't fucking call me that <laughs> yeah. yeah the drow oh boy so drow are bad and have always been bad and will always be bad. That's my hot take. This is from the guy who read, like, all of the Drist books? Well, not all of them, because there's, like, 40, but I read a good amount. I certainly do know about how he left Menza Barons on, because it was, he, was not, he didn't want to be part of that evil society run by women. <laughs> 
Yeah. Jiminy Christmas, Robert. Everything ever written about the drow as a matriarchal society is very horny. It's too horny. Yeah. It's like illicitly horny, like, ooh, I can't talk about this, but what if women were in charge? It's very much the femdom fantasy where the women are in charge, but everything still centers around men and how important men are. Mm-hmm. It's not the best. Also, there's big spiders. Yeah, Annie, I'm sure, has thoughts about that. <laughs> I've got a couple of opinions. So the, the Eberron Drower clearly an attempt to take that away, but keep the elements that are slightly less problematic. Unfortunately. That winds up being a completely different... Kind of bad. ...stereotype. Because, you know, you want the drow to be kind of unknown. They're kind of like an unknown quantity because they're from somewhere else. Like, in regular D&D, they're from the Underdark. You know, the caves that run through the world because this world is built on ten-foot squares and dungeons. (laughs) In Eberron, they live on a different continent. The drow are from... Boy. The drow are the, you know, dark-skinned elves from the different continent. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. Covered in jungles? Mm-hmm. God. Yeah. I see what you were trying to do, but you somehow wound up in both Darkest Africa and Noble Savage. Yeah. Oh, God. The one thing it does is be like, they're not all evil anymore. When I joined the Eberron campaign that Chris was in, Ben just sort of gave me the gist of Eberron and also was like, also, there's Drow and we're not touching those ever. Yeah. <laughs> But I think you would prefer it because they're into scorpions and not spiders. Different kind of arachnid doesn't mean it's any better. Are scorpions arachnids? I don't know that. Scorpions? Yeah, they're arachnids. I know that because of Beast Wars. (laughs) The one thing I think that, like, look, nothing can really, like, balance that out. It's bad. But I do think a thing that shows at least good intentions on the part of Baker and the other designers of Eberron and the people who have kind of kept it going is that humans are explicitly bad. Humans are explicitly imperialist and exclusionary. The entire reason there are countries that broke off during the war was because, you know, eh, turns out the uh, the hags did not want to be part of this anymore. <laughs> Goodbye. The hags all eat out? Yeah, there's a country called Droam. Dargun is, I think, where the orcs seceded to and half-orcs. The other one is where, like, three very powerful hags were like, uh, peace out. This is ours now. And anything with the creature type monstrosity can come live here. If you look in the monster manual and you see your picture and it says monstrosity, you can come live here. So that sounds cool. And so, like, characterizing the history of this human kingdom as being the way it is told in the books and I think the way that it is meant to be told in the context of the canon because a lot of Eberron is kind of told in that you know half for the reader half for the the character sort of way which I find very appealing it's like oh yeah you know the great king Galifar conquered the goblin nations and then built this wonderful kingdom that then expanded and took over everything and gave these kingdoms to his human children and Made these deals with these powerful nobles. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of room between the lines to be like, oh, no, this is about the crumbling of an empire and the innate flaws that were in it. I feel like that's really cool because that's a thing that you don't really get a lot from D&D. On the other hand, my problem with every humans are dicks setting is that humans then become the default standard for white people and all the other non-human races become the standards for everybody else. That's fair. Listen, that's fair. You cannot say that that is not a part of a setting where there is literally a different continent full of dark-skinned elves who live in the jungle. Yeah. Again, say it out loud. Find the person who doesn't work on it and say it out loud. See what their reaction is. That is my (laughs) advice to everyone creating a superhero or fantasy story. (laughs) I do like that it is a... While it does have, like, those kind of problematic real-world implications... I think you're absolutely right about that. It also is a specific addressing of the problematic way that D&D is played. Hey, there are consequences to just going somewhere and raiding a dungeon and killing everyone who lives there and taking their stuff. (laughs) I remember reading through Keep on the Borderlands, which back in like first edition D&D was like your starter module. The thing about Keep on the Borderlands is that it details very specifically, here's how many male, female, and child monsters are in this area oh <laughs> and here's how many experience points the children are worth oh christmas oh dear and that's something that i feel like DD really started to move away from in third edition like the first third edition adventure is the sunless citadel where the first monster encounter you have is meepo a sad cobalt <laughs> 
who you're not supposed to kill. And who, like, if you make a deal with him and befriend him, he will, like, lead you through where the rest of the kobolds live and you don't have to fight them. Meepo is basically built to be adopted. Which is how, the way that I play D&D, not intentionally, I sure do come up with a lot of characters that y'all want to befriend <laughs> and take with you. Well. <laughs> but one of the big adjustments, and I think if memory serves, one of the more controversial adjustments that Eberron made was it didn't do away with alignment, right? Like alignment still exists. The rigid nine square tic-tac-toe board of alignment exists. But A, creatures do not have default alignments. B, just because you're lawful evil doesn't mean you're bad. Just because you're lawful good doesn't mean you're good. You can be lawful evil and just, you know, be a politician. (laughs) (laughs) Because if you can just cast detect evil and then kill that person, that's a weird setting. Casting detect evil can definitely like ruin plans for a secret villain which makes it a lot harder to do a noir story, which is one of the things that, again, I stole for a game that I played. I was running a game where I just wholesale stole the whole Karnath thing, but I had the mayor of a city was a vampire, who this was his big legislation, was to like get a bunch of skeletons, like an army of skeletons, but they were only going to do menial labor, and it was fine. And the big question was, like, is he actually trying to build up an army of undead to take things over? And it's like, no, Look, he's lawful evil, but that just means he wants to make his city better at the expense of all other cities. <laughs> he's still the mayor. I'm pretty sure your party got him reelected. Yes. Yeah. If you look at the way games have moved over the past, what, 16 years, 15 years since everyone came out, it's all moved in that direction where alignments are less restrictive. I don't think there's a lot of stuff in the current edition of D&D and 5th edition that like requires you to be lawful good or requires you to be neutral in the way that 3rd edition and 3.5 and Pathfinder had like lawful weapons and and anarchic weapons and, and stuff like that that was like specifically made to a sword that can make a moral judgment. Yeah, I don't think like paladins even have that thing anymore where they can get brutally punished for doing something that goes against their creed. You can be a lawful evil paladin of conquest, which again, 3rd was starting to move that way. And then by the time we get to, you know, through stuff like Pathfinder, through stuff like 13th Age, and then back to 5th edition, it's much less restrictive and much more encouraging of using that as a guideline. (laughs) I think it's interesting that Planescape kind of swung the opposite direction on alignment in that there are characters who are lawful evil in the same way that my mother is Catholic. (laughs) Sure, it was part of the upbringing, but they're non-practicing. Yeah, you know, I was raised lawful evil. You do the sacrifices on the big holidays. It's just a political standpoint, really. You go to the Tiamat service, but you just kind of, you know, it's really just an excuse to see family and eat a big dinner. (laughs) Which was another, like, another element of Eberron was that even though there are clerics who pray for their spells and cast divine magic, no one knows if gods are real or if it's just, like, they're a different kind of sorcerer. Like, there are people casting healing spells that they get from their gods, but people are like, eh, I don't know, that dude just has a book (laughs) and he can do this stuff. A lot of current D&D, I was actually talking to a friend of mine about this the other day, and a lot of current D&D, he pointed out, kind of descends from the mechanical way that Eberron works. Eberron had action points to encourage you to take, like, these bold, heroic actions that obviously would, you know, have a very small chance of success if you couldn't make an adjustment to the role, which is essentially how inspiration works now. The less restrictive alignments, the idea of having characters who are evil without being villains... The idea that you could, like, fight a good character who was misguided and all that. Like, that comes from Eberron. One of the more interesting changes that it makes, though, and one that I'm honestly not sure how I feel about it, is, uh, there's no dragons. (laughs) It's Dungeons and Dragons, though. It's, like, half the name of the game. You have to have at least one dungeon and at least one dragon. Yeah, dungeons, they've got plenty of dungeons. But I think probably because of the way it's set up to be this, you know, relatively low power setting, a baby dragon can thoroughly destroy like a third level party. So all the dragons live on another continent. (laughs) Like all the dragons are over there. And every now and then they will like show up and deliver a prophecy and then leave again. (laughs) Which, you know, I mean, if you have to deal with a whole bunch of mortals who keep just fighting each other, that that seems fair. There's a lot of other like really specific stuff about the system that I find kind of fascinating and interesting. Like the idea of the secret 13th moon and the secret 13th dragon mark and the secret 13th plane of existence. Because like... Why would you not? Yeah. Honestly. If you're going to have 12 things, then you have to have a secret 13 thing. That's just how it works. That's a fruits basket. There's a secret 13th month. On the calendar in Eberron? Yeah. Where does it go? Look, I wish I could tell you. Is it like a leap year thing? You know, kind of. What if someone's born in the 13th month? How old do they get? Oh, then look, that's all secrets. (laughs) There's trains and there's airships. 
travel is encouraged to be like it's all indiana jones stuff it's like hey people who like roll for random encounters during travel that's a boring way to play this game just take the map and draw a red line from one place to the next and you're there now and now you can have the encounter little dashed line to indicate the time is passing yeah which i feel like maybe i'm different from the way a lot of people play DD. i don't think i am like i feel like i'm pretty much a extremely good but but fairly standard dungeon master right but like i'd love to skip boring parts and everyone encourages you to do that the game we've been playing like there has been something that they have encountered on their way to a place a couple times and those things are very plot relevant oh no if you're just rolling a random encounter on the way then people know it's a random encounter if it's not plot relevant then why are you doing it it's a story. Okay, so the so the warm teddy bear is relevant. I don't... It's perfectly normal. I don't know why. He's not a perfectly normal bear. He was in the middle of a battle. I can't. I can't. I can't. I t- keep telling you things are perfectly normal, and then they turn out to be perfectly normal, and you get mad. <laughs> I get mad when they're not perfectly normal. Eh, well... I get mad no matter what. I would suggest you read that item description every time we play. Oh, no. Do you keep... God damn it, Christopher. <laughs> So anyway, that's Everon. I mean, I will have scripted encounters during travel sequences in Jam Tower, but that's mostly because there's a monster I want to try out on the players. Yeah, which is fine. Well, sometimes you need a break between us just sort of flapping our lips for three hours. Sometimes I like to interrupt book club with some terrible, terrible things happening. <laughs> right. It's fine. It's fine. Sometimes I like to interrupt terrible things happening with book club. <laughs> a system that manages to combine the best of pulp adventure and honestly, some of the worst of Pulp Adventure <laughs> with the best of D&D and a little bit of the worst of D&D and make something that I think is incredibly adaptable. It lends itself well to having different types of adventures. You can have like a city-based investigation, who killed the mayor adventure in the city, and then that can take you to the fairy tale kingdom or the undead kingdom or the pirate kingdom that's up in the, the north. All kinds of stuff that makes sense. It should also be probably noted that in the very friggin' first couple of pages of the character creation stuff, there's a table that just says regrets. (laughs) I don't know why that got me. Yeah. I mean, there's also like several things that are just like, so who's paying you to go out and do an adventure? Who's your patron? Who's paying you for things? There's also, unlike the first chapter of Sharn, there's a table that's just for how badly you fall if you fall in Sharn. Oh, ouch. Yeah. Ouch. Oof. There's a D8 just called Falling in Sharn. It can go from like you fall hundreds of feet, you fall 3D6 die 10 before striking a bridge, you hit a sky coach, you hit an outcropping, you fall past a hippogriff. <laughs> You can fly! Actually, a nearby wizard or artifactor kept Feather Fall to save you, but for a moment it felt like you can fly. And now the spellcaster wants payment. <laughs> Everyone's good. Everyone's good, actually. Also, like, a thing that they've done in the most recent edition, which I think is nice, and a little bit of this existed in the previous edition, because again, it is an immediate post-horrible war setting. So, like, they've incorporated a lot of rules. Prosthetics. And, like, here's what your magical prosthetic arm can do if your character doesn't have one. The key art for gnomes on the background scenario is a gnome with one arm. But you don't have to have the prosthetic arm either if you don't want to, but it can shoot off your arm like a Mazinger Z if you do get one, just so you know. Right. This is a setting with robots. It's fun. I really like Everon, and I think the way that it presents things. Oh, yes. Last thing. Uh huh. To tie it all back together. You know how many kinds of coins there are in Everon? <laughs> how many kinds of coins, Chris? Four. There's gold, uh-huh. silver, uh-huh. platinum, uh-huh. and copper. Uh-huh. You know what they have? They have slang terms. You know what the slang terms are? Copper crowns, silver sovereigns, golden galifars, and platinum dragons. There's only one that's not alliterative, so it's hard to remember. And what's the exchange rate? 10, 10, 10, 10. Thank God. Why not just have one type of coin? That's what we have ended up doing in my game, which makes me a little sad. I like a little bit of complexity. Just a little bit. Have we thoroughly exhausted you on the Everon? Listen, I could go on. I don't know if I'm explaining it really well because it is something that I'm very excited about. And obviously, it is every bit as complicated as any other role-playing game system. But it's complicated in a way that I find very appealing as opposed to a lot of role-playing game settings that I find complicated in a way that is very challenging to work within and very restrictive 
at least as I understand it. Honestly, the thing I like best about the setting is just like the no so they have like, you know, everybody can kind of use magic, but it's mostly like, you know, a couple spells that help you with your job. And I just always think that kind of magic scenario is very interesting. You could have people that are like spellcasters, but you can also just, you know, know how to do a mending if you're a repair person. I feel like a lot of role-playing game settings are... And, and again, like, and I think this is a positive thing about Forgotten Realms too, but like D&D and superhero comics, which are two things that I absolutely love, because I like role-playing games, but I love D&D. They are both things where it is perfectly okay and expected and encouraged to steal. You can just take something that you think is cool in a movie or in a TV show or in a book and put it in D&D. And I feel like the Greyhawk setting, the Forgotten Realms setting, a lot of campaign settings are based on that. People taking things that they think are cool and then retroactively making them work in the system. Whereas Eberron takes the system and then asks a series of if this, then what questions that carry it to something exciting that makes sense for people who already understand the game and is probably complete nonsense for people who don't. <laughs> yeah, our Everon game was definitely like my reintroduction to sort of very chunky, meaty tabletop gaming for the first time in like at least seven years at that point. It was a hell of a jumping off point. If you're curious at all about what I've been talking about and like why I get so excited, the new Everon book is actually really good. It's a very well-made product. It's the nice 1940s style headings for character types and the dragon marked houses I think are really cool. If you like Batman the Animated Series, you'll probably <laughs> like Everon, honestly. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Honestly, yeah. Very, very sort of similar aesthetics. Mm-hmm. You know, on account of the noir. So yeah, that's all I got. That is why, to quote Ben, that's why I believe that Eberron ever owns. <laughs> oh my God, Ben. No. Actually, that might have been Charlotte. No. Someone who says terrible things that we know. Yeah. That does sound like Charlotte. I would say, how dare you commit this crime on our show, but we have committed much worse crimes on this show. It's true. Mm-hmm. Well, damn Ben or damn Charlotte, whichever one of them made it up first. I really hope that after all this, that the audience has been thoroughly convinced that halflings are better when they ride dragons or however I put it at the beginning of the episode. I didn't write it down this time. Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. Thank you. Halflings ride dinosaurs. And I don't know how I said it at the beginning of the episode. Uh, Halflings are better when they ride dinosaurs. Sure. Let's go with that one. I'm not saying it again. All right. So I think it's time for our final facts. Chris, as our guest... And as pretty much the person who has led this discussion, what would you say your final fact is about Eberron? Dungeons and Dragons is a game of choices. Oi, <laughs> oi! <laughs> Comma, and Eberron encourages you to make those choices about the campaign setting. <laughs> it's not prescriptive. It's the opposite. What's the opposite of prescriptive? It suggests rather than prescribing. Again, this is a bad final fact. It was funnier when I just kept it short. <laughs> What's your final fact? The more successful Dungeons and Dragons is, the more scrutiny from on high it gets, which ironically means that the more successful D&D is, the less interesting it gets, which is why Eberron is about as interesting as 5e is going to get. We're not getting 5e Planescape or Spelljammer. I'm sorry, folks. That's reasonable. (laughs) Sorry, that was kind of a bummer. Annie, what's your final fact? (laughs) My final fact is that robots covered in knives should belong in every tabletop setting hard agree that i can see that (laughs) you can see that it's a game of imagination and if you're not imagining robots covered in knives why are you here what are you even doing i feel like eberron is one of those settings where it's like a stefan bit like this setting has everything (laughs) robots covered in knives halflings on dinosaurs pirate kingdoms hags sad bots what's sad bots oh it's that thing where robots are made to fight a war but now the war's over so they're sad it's very much the same kind of thing as like a chobits is that you made robots but you made it so that they could feel sad (laughs) why did you make them feel sad (laughs) you made a conscious choice to make a robot that could be sad (laughs) can you at least these ones chris (laughs) i mean (laughs) it's a game of choices When they made the war robots, did they make it so that you could f*** the war robots? If you f*** the war robot, does it lose its memories? (laughs) It's actually the safest place to put the off switch when they're made for fighting wars. (laughs) I've listened to that episode a couple times. Oh, it just occurred to me that you could have an entire redo of Measure of a Man, but with a warforged. Yeah, yes you could. I encourage you to do so. You could have that just be an entire segment of your campaign. 
<laughs> is a trial to determine whether you're warforged as a people. Ah, uh, Chobits. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much, as ever, for coming on our podcast and for taking significantly less than six months this time. Sorry about that. <laughs> Don't think I couldn't. <laughs> we didn't even talk about the pirate country. Chris, please. <laughs> When you aren't on our podcast, where can folks find you? They can find me by going to my website, which is the-isb.com. That has links to all the stuff that I do. I do a lot of podcasts. I also do a lot of writing of things that you can read online or pick up from your local comic book store. Or you can get them on Comixology if you prefer to get your comics online. That sounded like an advertisement for like an AOL keyword website back in the 90s. Enter keyword the-isb. Online. Online. We are on the web. <laughs> If you do have an itch for Dracula after talking to Chris Sims, I would definitely check out his Dracula comic on Comixology. It's real good. It's Dracula the Unconquered. That is correct. It's very fun. Please read it because we make no money on it, which means it only comes out about once every three years. (laughs) (laughs) But it also has an airship if you like airships. And if you listen to this episode, you might like airships. Listen, it's got everything. Airships, Dracula, competent lesbians. Yeah. Everything I like in D&D. I'm listening. Also, if you weren't into airships before, you might be by the end of this episode. <laughs> also, Chris, you know, your website's fine, but have you considered a dot horse? Only once, and somebody sniped that domain from me. I'm just saying, dot horses, they're very useful. Wait, is the ISB dot horse taken? No, terrible dot horse is taken. <laughs> okay, uh, that's 30 bucks, adding to cart. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Every time. Why? Listen, if you want it, we can talk. I'm good. I could just buy it and have it redirect to your website anyway. I had terrible.horse redirect to a Rickroll because I'm vintage like that. I was a little upset that that one didn't redirect to Sailor Bills, but it's fine. I can change it now. It was mostly just for the joke. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I Will Fight You comes out every five weeks, wherever you can download podcasts. It is edited by Lucas Brown of the Math of You podcast. If you want to talk to us about our podcast and related podcasts, you can do that. We are at CRC Podcasts on Twitter. You can also check out our website for this and other stuff, which is at, no, not Terrible.Horse. That one's a different website. <laughs> at CrookedRussianCam.Horse. Because it's a very, very good thing to have on the internet as a dot horse. I recommend it. If you want to give us money, you can do that at patreon.com slash the gem jam. As of this recording, we have recently remodeled our Patreon and have some brand new tiers that are pretty fun. So I would recommend checking that out. If you do not have any money and you still want to shower us with love, you can do that at Twitter or by just giving us a like, rating, review, subscribe, whatever you want to do. We also have a tea Public, which you can find a link to to buy some of our terrible merchandise on CrookedRussianCam.Horse. I'm still reeling at the fact that we deliberately set up our Patreon so that people will pay money to send us pornography. I mean, this was partially your idea. I mean, yes, I'm just, just hitting me now what it is that we've done. <sighs> I'm actually impressed. I've already started planning on, like, content warnings and time codes so people can skip these things. <laughs> I can't say that I'm sad. <laughs> Look, we deliberately set out to make a Patreon shit post, and now here we are. We have to deal with the consequences of our actions. Has anyone taken the bragging rights tier yet? No, not yet. I saw that. I got that email, and I just want you to know that I am going to recuse myself because I am too good at it. <laughs> really? Because we could just read some of the Sensuous Secrets of Saltmarsh. You could. Is that one of the Handsome Gary books? Yes, it is. Like I said. I'm very good at the game Dungeons & Dragons. Really good at D&D, honestly. Playing D&D the way it's meant to be played. Which is like this. Chris, thank you again for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on, as always. Of course. And we will see everybody back here next time, where Mackenzie will be back. After all, Chris won't be around, so she Mm -hmm. will feel free to return. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because she has a blood feud with Christopher Sims. Apparently. Next time we'll be back to talk about a really terrible Richard Rich movie, Alpha and Omega. Please join us for that one. It should be fun. Yay! So until next time, I'm Annie. I'm Kit. I'm Chris. And we have fought you. I feel like doing 
podcasts for 10 years before I started editing one is like a Sisyphean punishment. <laughs> yeah, that's the universe telling you what you've done wrong. Yeah. And also the one I edit is the one that every episode is two hours long with someone who has a spotty at best internet connection. That's God pointing at you and laughing there, Chris. Yeah. These are the chains I forged in life, it turns out. <laughs> When I got onto this call, I had the camera on, and and he was like, "Oh my god, you don't have to have the camera on." And I was like, "Jesus Christ!" That is not. <laughs> I did not. God damn it, Christopher! I apologize. Rudest, that came out very bitchy. The rudest thing I've ever heard in my life. This thing weighs six pounds. <laughs> that does sound like a thing you don't. I laid it down on the table and I dropped it a little bit, and it hit the table with a thump, and my mom across the room jumped out of her seat. It was so loud. <laughs> I could beat goats to death with this book. Alternatively, you could feed a family of goats for a week. This is an RPG book as written by Stephen King. <laughs> so how often do you go to the planet of Maine? <laughs> you can just go to Maine if you want to. can just have Maine adventures. You could just have a Star Trek game that takes place entirely <laughs> in and around Maine. You could go to space, but why would you? <laughs> but why would you? Because you're in Maine. Visit Maine. <laughs> Like, they didn't really go against the country that is using liches for their generals or whatever, but... Nope. Dorg! Oh, There's biscuit. Biscuits had a spook. Yeah, someone closed the door. Someone. Oh, no. Oh, Biscuit. That's what my dog does every time someone closes a door. In the <laughs> apartment complex. God, that poor baby. Yeah, she's very scared. I feel really bad for her. Is the most appealing thing. Oh, that's my, that's my dog. A lot of door closing. <laughs> Lots of door closing. Biscuit, are you okay? <laughs> I love Biscuit. Oh no, someone in my building has taken up jazz flute. Oh good. The best kind of flute. This pandemic's gotta end, you guys. <laughs> Wear your masks. Sorry, that was kind of a bummer. My god, this jazz flute. <laughs> Please stop. Everyone, please wear your mask so Kit doesn't have to hear jazz flute anymore. Wear your mask so I can leave my house and jazz flute person can leave their house and stop playing jazz flute. It's the year 2000, everybody. It's the age of the web. Check us out at AOL keyword horse. <laughs> so this has been I Will Fight You, where we cyberbully Chris Sims. 